Well, we are really excited this morning, uh, after almost a year of not doing this, to dive back into a series and a few series now uh, that simply walk through a book of the Bible. Uh, in our history, we've kind of alternated back and forth between what we call topical messages and textual messages. Topical meaning we address uh, a subject that is kind of pressing or uh, a felt need or issue uh, relevant to us today. And textual meaning we just open up the scriptures and see what God, through his written word, has spoken in a timeless way. And so we're going to begin uh, to do that today through the New Testament book of Philippians. If you brought a Bible or uh, can open your Bible app, uh, you can follow along uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 where it says, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is kind of the standard threefold intro addressing the author, the audience, and a kind of a greeting or a blessing. And so from here, we learn that the author uh, of this New Testament letter is the Apostle Paul, uh, a former Jewish leader, used to be what's called a Pharisee, uh, who actually persecuted Christians until a supernatural encounter with Jesus, where Jesus called him to become a follower of his and preacher to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. And so uh, Paul is the writer of this letter. It says, and Timothy, uh, Timothy being Paul's protege, kind of his mentee. And some scholars would suggest that Timothy's actually the secretary of this letter, that uh, Paul was imprisoned at the time that he wrote this letter and was dictating it to Timothy, who was transcribing it uh, for uh, the Philippian people. Uh, scholars believe that this was written somewhere in the neighborhood of AD 60 to 62. Uh, and uh, like I said, Paul was imprisoned at the time that he that he wrote this letter. And it was written, uh, the text says, to the uh, God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, to the church at a place called Philippi. Philippi was a Roman outpost, was located in eastern Macedonia. You can uh, Google that if you want to be keen about that. The important thing we need to understand is that this church was actually a community that Paul himself was part of founding. You can go and read about it in Acts chapter 16, but Paul essentially, with the leadership core, what he refers to here as the overseers and deacons, Paul essentially founded and helped plant this church, so he had a long history of relationship. It's understood that he founded this probably over a decade earlier, so for at least a decade, he had been in close, ongoing, heartfelt friendship and relationship with this community of people. And so uh, that's kind of the, the, the background of the letter. Later on in the letter, it actually describes kind of the nature of how this came about, where a, a church member from the Church of Philippi, a guy named Epaphroditus, actually visited Paul in prison to bring him a gift from the church and to update him on the church's affairs. And in response to that update, Paul is providing, through Timothy's uh, kind of transcribing, this letter to bring back uh, to the church in response. And so that gives us a bit of a background of what's going on here. And in the rest of the text that we're going to look at today, all the way to verse 11, it kind of serves as an introduction that foreshadows Paul's purpose for the rest of the letter. And so today we're going to get a heart of what the rest of this letter is about. And in this introductory section, Paul basically does two things. The first is he expresses how he feels about this Philippian church. 
That begins in verse 3, where it says this. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. First thing Paul says in this letter is he just gushes out his love and affection for the people and community that is this Philippian church. That's kind of first things first. He wants them to know how deeply and how fully he just plain loves them goes on to describe why. He says he loves them, first of all, because of their partnership in the gospel. They don't just connect over, you know, the same Netflix shows that they're binge watching. It's their co-laboring in the purposes of Jesus together that is the basis for his love, which he adds kind of the by the way to assure them that the very Jesus who began the good work in them, began the, the, the plant of their community, would be faithful to continue to build and grow and, and carry it on until his eventual promised return. But he also says, secondly, that he loves them because of their stick to what he describes as whether he's in chains or not, the faithfulness and the loyalty and the care that they have shown him. And he closes this kind of gush rant uh, by affirming that God himself, as his witness, can testify of the depth of affection that Paul has for these people of the Philippian church. Basically, if you were part of our last series, Friend Like Jesus, where we looked at how Jesus did friendship, Paul is doing the very same thing that Jesus did with his friends, where first things first, Jesus made sure to let his friends know that they know that they know that they are deeply loved by him. That's what Paul's doing here in the beginning of this letter to the Philippians. But he goes on then and kind of makes a second move, not just to share his feelings about them, but he then goes on to share his feelings for them. And that takes place starting in verse 9. He says, and in addition to how I feel about you, he says, this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may, able, may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Basically, what Paul is wishing for them is that they, as a community of believers, would feel the same way about each other that Paul feels about them. His hope for them is that, as he says, their love would abound more and more. Kind of presumes that Paul believes that they already love each other at a baseline level. He just wants them to level it up and to kind of take it up, you know, a few more notches so that their love can ooze palpably to and among each other. And he says that when that happens, there's sort of a chain reaction of three things that'll occur. First of all, if they live out that abounding love more and more, they'll gain a degree of discernment. The more they learn to love well, the more they'll understand the leading and direction of Jesus among them. 
In addition, that'll translate into the way that they behave. The text says that they'll become blameless in a way that love covers a multitude of sins. And then when that happens, when they live that way, it says they'll have a certain impact, that they'll bear the fruit of righteousness. Literally translated that they'll make Jesus attractive to each other and to others. And so Paul's encouragement is to abound in love, not just so that they can feel loved, but so that they can receive something in discernment that will translate in the way that they live to be blameless, to bear a fruit, a fruit of righteousness that will reveal Jesus to the world around them. Basically, Paul's wish is that they would become a clearer and more compelling picture of Jesus through living out an abounding love the same way that he feels for them. That's basically what Paul is trying to do in this introduction and basically what Paul is trying to do through this letter to the Philippian church. He's trying to get them to look more like Jesus through abounding in love. And as they learn to love better, they'll reveal Jesus better to the world around them. That's kind of his goal for the whole point of the letter, that they become more like Jesus by learning to love well. But what's interesting in this intro is that it, it kind of provides a clue as to how. So it's not just a heart gush, it actually segues into starting to provide some how to live that way, which is what the letter serves to do. And if we go back and look at those two chunks, the, the move that Paul made to express his feelings about them, and then the move that he made to express his feelings for them, we can see that clue as to how the Philippian church is to abound in love to reveal Jesus to a greater degree. So look back at what he says at the beginning of that first move in uh, verses three and four, where he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. See, that heart gush of deep affection that Paul expresses to the Philippian church is not just some random feelings. It's not just a mood that Paul finds himself in. It finds himself in. And it's not just based on like recent circumstances as to why he feels that way. The deep affection that Paul has for the Philippian church is actually the product of a deep and consistent prayer life on behalf of them. In fact, in these few uh, short couple verses, he uses four extremes. He talks about every time he remembers them in prayer and in all his prayers for all of them, he always prays with joy. This all of you all the time in every way kind of extreme version of why Paul prays for them or how Paul prays for them is why his love is abounding for them. He loves them so deeply as a product of his prayer life. We see that in his wish for the Philippian church as well. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, and for you, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. See, the same feeling that Paul has grown for them, that he now wishes that they experience for each other, is in addition a product of his prayer life. It's not just a random feeling that he feels like they're going to gain. It's become an extension of his prayer life, and he hopes will become an extension of theirs as well. 
And so what Paul is teaching us here is that the way that they can become the kind of community that reveals Jesus, the kind of community that abounds in love more and more, is actually through an all of you all the time in every way kind of commitment to prayer. Now, you've got to know, when we as a leadership uh, thought about the books of the Bible that we could consider to dive into, Philippians topped the list for a couple reasons. The first is that Philippians is a friendship letter. In the first century, uh, letter writing was something you went to school to learn about, and uh, one of the forms of letters was a friendship letter, just a, an expression of love for and a wish of love among other people. And we felt like after three years of a grueling pandemic, to work through a friendship letter would be soothing for our souls. But more than just the, the, the soothing nature of a, a friendship letter, we were struck by the purpose of the letter, that at the end of the day, what Paul wants is for people to reveal Jesus. And throughout the fall, as we've been learning to center our lives on the person of Jesus, we've realized again and again that the purpose of our community is simply to bring Jesus to life. And where Jesus came to earth to incarnate love, we as followers of his can live personally and together as love incarnate and can reveal Jesus through living out his primacy of his new commandment and new covenant law of love. But then even on top of that, we were struck by the diversity of the audience of the book of Philippians that Paul's writing to. Because the people in Philippi were not just diverse, you know, from a, a, an age perspective or socioeconomic perspective or even a spiritual background of, of Jews and, and non-Jewish people together. But actually, if you read about the, the founding of the Philippian church, uniquely in the first century, it was founded by a core of God-fearing women. And so unique to Philippians, there was actually quite a, a, a great degree of gender diversity as well. And so for all those reasons, we thought, you know, this would be really relevant to us. And really, when you get Paul's, Paul's heart, it's that they would live this abounding love amidst all of that diversity. That's why we've called this first intro series of our study of the book of Philippians, Preaching to the Choir, not just because Paul is teaching things to already Christian people who already know and believe them, which is often how we use that phrase, but rather because of what Paul's ultimate goal is like. It's as if he's writing to individual musical notes, desiring for them individually and together to become this harmony of a beautiful love song of Jesus together. We thought that that would be the kind of message that could apply to us in a really compelling way. And then here in week one, uh, kind of through this intro text, we can appreciate that the way we become this harmony of love, the way that we become this diverse group of notes of abounding love that together reveal the person of Jesus Christ is actually by, first things first, going to the source of that love himself through an all of you, all the time, in every way kind of prayer life. The big idea for today, today is the way that we become a harmony of love is through the behavior of a symphony of prayer. Now, I don't know how that sits with all of you, but I know in my own world, when I think about my own prayer life and the degree to which I even engage in a, a life of prayer, a lot of times, if I'm honest with myself, my prayers take on kind of a vending machine form in how I relate to God. 
Because as I got it, my prayer, like most of my prayers, are asking God for stuff and asking God to do and be and provide and 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 kind of do things on behalf of me to give me things in a, in a sense. And you know, on its own, that's not wrong. Jesus taught his original disciples to ask God for things and even to ask God persistently in prayer for things. And Jesus' brother James uh, said to his audience in one of the New Testament letters that he wrote, said, uh, you don't have the things that you desire because you don't pray and ask God enough for them. So asking God for things in prayer is okay. I guess what I've had to kind of process as I've considered this text for myself is the degree to which I'm engaging in prayer to receive versus the degree to which I'm engaging in prayer to achieve. Because Jesus came to earth and lived and died and rose again to achieve something, to become incarnate love. And he invites followers of his to join him in that purpose by growing into his image and becoming personally and together in communities, love incarnate. He desires us to achieve something, and the achievement of that something happens through his very risen life and supernatural power. And so it should only make sense that first things first, if we're going to become like Jesus and live that incarnate love, especially in abounding more and more kind of ways, that we would first things first go to Jesus as the source in prayer and request and rely on him to do that in an all of you all the time in every way kind of a way. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognizes this need for prayer to experience this kind of love in community. He says this, he says, the more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all of our fellowship, all of our Christian community is actually in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Got to understand that community and abounding in love is not just the product of teaching on it, and it's not just the product of good strategies or programs. It's actually the product of the supernatural work of Jesus Christ, of love himself to build and grow and blossom and flourish, incarnate love among us. So I was thinking about this, you know, even last week as we celebrated the end of our community series in January, learning to be a friend like Jesus and celebrating the end of that series with a community meal. Sat at my table, had a great, enjoyable lunch, sat with Jeanette and Kathy and Dana and uh, Jen and Sue at Brooklyn, and we enjoyed lunch together, got to talk and meet with people that we don't talk too much or haven't met uh, before at all. But as I, as I considered this text, which I, I, I studied a little bit in advance of last Sunday, and considered it you know, in our lunch table and looking across the auditorium lobby in St. Catharines where I was enjoying lunch and seeing all of us enjoy all this community together, I wondered what would happen five months from now if we held a lunch like this and for five months every single one of us and us together committed to praying for one another in an all of you all the time in every way kind of way more than teaching on community, more than cultivating experiences and lunches and activities of community, what if we just plain prayed for it and allowed Jesus to stir up that abounding love among us? 
You know, as a church community, if you've been around for a long time, you know that we've experienced the power of prayer to change our hearts. We've seen the power of prayer change our hearts when it comes to people experiencing homelessness and other forms of disadvantage. We've experienced Jesus changing our hearts when it comes to the LGBTQ community and other people that in our society find themselves pushed to the margins and the fringes of relationship. We know that prayer changes our hearts. The question is, have we ever gone to Jesus intently and consistently to allow him and ask him to change our hearts for each other, for us as a community to be people who abound and abound in love. So many people these days find themselves kind of into Jesus, but not into the church, as if the church is some kind of institution or black box, inanimate object, when in reality, the church, from Jesus' perspective, the church is just people. The church is his People. The church is you and I and us together. The church is his body and his bride whom he deeply, deeply loves and desires us to love in an abounding way as well if we're going to reveal Jesus to the world around us. And so I wonder in this coming series and in the series is to follow, we're actually going to do a three week, then a four week, and then later on a seven week series so that we can conclude our study of Philippians by the end of June. I wonder what would happen if each of us personally and us together committed, not just to learning how to abound in love in the way that Philippians teaches, but committed to praying to Jesus to grow that love among us and committed to praying to each other and for each other in an all of you all the time in every way kind of way. What if we prayed for people that we know and people that we don't yet know, for friends and people that we haven't become friends with yet? What if we prayed for, for leaders and for our life groups? What if we prayed for forgiven and healed pasts and also for hope-filled futures? What if we accessed our prayer teams and our prayer walls and you know, our in-service prayer walls and our online prayer walls and every avenue we possibly could to become people who are praying not just to receive things, but to achieve things and allow Jesus to change our hearts and grow our love for each other in abounding ways. You know, at the end of this series on Philippians, it's going to be somewhere in the, uh, the, the end of June, right around the time where as a, a leadership and as a community, we talk about raising a glass for where God has brought us in this ministry season, the ministry season that launches in September and kind of wraps up at the end of June. What if this year we were able to raise a glass, not just for the ways that Jesus was able to grow us as a clearer and more complete and more compelling expression of who he is, but we were able to specifically raise a glass for the way that he grew our love for each other in the process, the way that he enabled our love to abound more and more so that we could be that clearer, more complete, more compelling picture of Jesus that he intends. Because he came to be incarnate love, he can grow in us the capacity to be love incarnate with each other. But today, let's appreciate that that starts first things first, not by teaching on how to love each other, not by launching programs or initiatives that help foster community, but by going to the source independent prayer. If you and I and us together are going to become a harmony of love, first things first, it's going to require us to live as a symphony of prayer. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the, the chance to dive back into your written word, knowing that it reveals you, uh, the living word, 
and enables us to follow and become more like you. And I, I, I just thank you for the way that you've inspired us already uh, with this section of Philippians and the, the kind of lives we can live together. Help us to realize, Jesus, though, that the source of that life is you and you alone and the source of any capacity to love and to become and experience a greater degree of love is in you and you alone. So we look to you and we ask of you and we cling to you and we beg of you that you would grow us to become those kinds of people through these series and through these next number of months. May your love in us abound more and more so that we can reveal to each other and others the reality of who you are and who you want to be in our lives today. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for this time and for your faithfulness to continue to do your work among us. In your name we pray. Amen.